this week, you and I will witness many in our country, in our towns, and even in our neighborhoods carrying out strange customs and exhibiting bizarre behavior in the celebration of what is one of the oldest holidays still observed today known as Halloween. And along with the annual trick-or-treating and costume parties, something else that happens at, at this time every year in certain Christian circles is that some believers get together and argue about whether or not one should participate. They will message back and forth online. They'll argue in chat rooms and debate in small groups about whether or not Christians should participate in the Halloween festivities. You have some who take serious issue with this holiday because its pagan roots are well documented. By doing the smallest amount of research, you will discover that this celebration can be traced all the way back to a time before Christ's birth. This holiday was thought to have originated with the uh, Druids who lived in the area now known as Britain and France. And early on, before Halloween was even called Halloween, the Druids got together at the end of summer, beginning of winter, and at this time they believed on a certain day every year, evil spirits were more active and likely to attack than on other days. So to combat these attacks, they would attempt to appease these evil spirits by offering sacrifices and by disguising themselves. Well, this practice of dressing up and appeasing evil spirits eventually evolved into the commercial holiday that it is today, which is the reason why many want absolutely nothing to do with Halloween. But on the other side, you have other, another group of Christians who will say there are also uh, uh, pagan influences in the way we celebrate Christmas and Easter and birthdays. So if you do away with one, you need to completely do away with all the rest. So if you get rid of jack-o'-lanterns, you got to rid yourself of Easter bunnies and Christmas trees and cakes and candles, and some have. They also argue that the church in the, in the later centuries took this practice of ancient, this ancient practice and they, they transformed it a bit, even giving it a name associated with the Christian saints. You may not know this, but November 1st is All Saints Day, making October 31st All Hallows Eve, which means the day before All Hallows Day, or the day before All Saints Day. So those in favor of taking part, to an extent, in the Halloween festivities argue that just like the church in the Middle Ages took this day and transformed it, so can believers today by either offering a Christian alternative or by taking part in it, to an extent, without moral compromise, being both salt and light in it. So these are the two extremes. And I know that there are probably some in the church that, that land, in this church, that land on, on both sides. And we're not going to spend any more time this morning discussing these different views because that's not the point of today's sermon. And I know some of you are upset. 
wishing we could talk more about the history of Halloween. Well, we're not going to talk about Halloween this morning or any Sunday morning. But I say all that to make this point. It's a shame that this is where evangelicals spend the majority of their time and focus this time of year every year. Because there is an event far superior to All Hallows' Eve, far superior to Halloween that took place on October 31st, 1517. It's an event that directly affects what we do each and every week as believers and week in and week out as a church. Believers, the event that we are going to discuss this morning that took place on All Hallows' Eve close to 500 years ago sparked the greatest reform the church has ever gone through. Therefore, this day, Reformation Sunday, and October 31st, Reformation Day should be for us as followers of Christ what Independence Day is for us as American citizens. It's that important, folks. It's that important. I mean, the reason why you are here this morning with your own Bibles in your hands in a language that you can understand, the reason why we encourage you to read and study your Bibles on your own, and the reason why we look at what God's Word says week in and week out and pattern our lives after the teachings found in this book and in this book alone, that all comes as a result of the Protestant Reformation. It's that important. Well, how did the Reformation come about? Well, to better understand this movement, we need to first know a little bit about the man behind the movement, Martin Luther. How many of you have heard that name before? Raise your hand. Buddy? Yeah, a lot of you in here. Okay. Most of us have. We know that he has a, a denomination named after him. Some musicians know him as the one who wrote the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But what's unfortunate is that many Christians don't know much more than that about him. Again, that's the equivalent of Americans not knowing anything about George Washington and his contributions. Folks, Luther's life and contributions should be that important to us as believers. Martin Luther lived a very interesting life. When looking at a timeline of his life, seemed as if he was destined to go through some sort of personal crisis every five years. And the reason this is significant is because of what results from each of these predicaments. For example, in 1505, Luther, who at the time was a brilliant 20-year-old law student, got caught in the middle of a violent thunderstorm while traveling home to visit family. During the storm, a bolt of lightning crashed close to him, apparently knocking him to the ground. Luther, fearing for his life, cried out in terror, Help me, St. Anne. St. Anne is a, a precious saint to the Catholics. He says, Help me, have mercy on me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. So Luther, fearing for his life, made a vow that if he was spared... He would devote his life to God and become a monk. Well, he was spared, 
And he did just that. Shortly after that event, Luther, rather quickly and impulsively, which you'll find out soon enough, that's the way he did a lot of things, quickly and impulsively entered into the monastery. He joined the Augustinian order. They were a group of monks that were known for being devout. They took their vows and their obligations seriously. Now, there are some orders that did not, but they did. Well, little did they know at the time that the now 21-year-old Luther was going to become one of the most devout and one of the most committed monks that the church had ever known. Sources tell us that while Luther was in the monastery, he was the monk's monk. While he served there, Luther applied himself with such zeal and devotion that everybody took notice. But there was a problem. It didn't matter the task. It didn't matter the level of devotion. Luther could not overcome this overwhelming feeling of guilt. It was probably a combination of his background in law and his ever-growing knowledge of God's standards and, of course, the work of the Spirit of God that led Luther to realize that he stood guilty and condemned before a holy God. And because Luther was so overcome with guilt and so overcome with this desire to remove it, he relied heavily on confession. In that day, the church taught that if you wanted your sins to be forgiven, you must confess them one by one by one. So on a daily basis, each of the monks would come and they would confess their sins of the past 24 hours. And, and most of the monks would just come and they would confess, you know, just a few very small, extremely petty offenses. They would say something like, you know, Father, forgive me. I sinned last night. I coveted Brother John's slice of bread or something like that. I mean, be honest, how much trouble can you get into in a monastery, right? And uh, they would receive minor penance, for example, say a few Hail Marys and a few Our Fathers, and then they would go back to work. Well, Luther took this practice of confessing sins one by one, literally and seriously. I mean, he would go in day after day after day into the confessional and to the priest, and he would confess every sin that he could remember. You ever tried to confess every little sin that you've ever committed? Yeah. It's laughable, isn't it? It's not an easy thing to do. I mean, we'll, we'll confess the really big ones, but what about every angry and jealous thought? What about every time we've not longed for God and loved God as we should? I mean, it's a draining and daunting task, isn't it? But Luther attempted to do just that. I mean, he looked into the depths of himself pinpointing the smallest of sins to confess. When Luther would step into a confessional, he would spend hours upon hours attempting to recall every single sin that he had committed over the past 24 hours. Well, as you can imagine, this drove his father confessors crazy. They would often tell Luther, Brother Martin, you know, if you're going to come in here and confess sin, come in here and confess sin, you know. Come in here with something juicy. Come in here with something significant to confess. But Luther couldn't help it. He desperately wanted peace of mind. He desperately wanted deliverance from the guilt he felt, but he found none. 
See, as Luther thought on the biblical law of God day after day, he became more and more overwhelmed by his guilt. He pictured God as a judge who only wanted wrath for the sinner. He pictured him as standing over man waiting to crush him. And at one point, when Luther was asked if he loved God, Luther cried out in desperation. In reply, he said, love God, sometimes I hate him. He was a tormented soul. I mean, even after he thought he had covered every sin in the confessional, he would return to his cell and then it would suddenly dawn on him a sin that he had committed in the past 24 hours that he forgot to confess and he would sink into even greater despair. Confession was not the, the only practice that Luther relied upon for relief. While in the monastery, he labored twice as hard as the next best monk and would spend his downtime fasting and praying. I read a biography a while back on Luther's life that said that Luther would often fast until the hours seemed unreal and his strength was so far gone that he could hardly move. He would lock himself into his unheated cell and remain there until prayer and fasting and exhaustion overcame him and the other monks literally had to break into his cell to drag him out. He spent hours upon hours in prayer before the altar of the monastery church until he was literally lying unconscious on the floor. And do you think after doing this, day after day, Luther had peace of mind? No. Luther came to realize that there was no relief for him from his guilt in monastic living. Well, in 1510... Five years after this scary episode with the thunderstorm, things seemed to be looking up for Luther when he and another one of his brothers from the monastery were appointed to represent their order in a very important meeting that was to be held in Rome. And Luther was ecstatic about this opportunity, and here's the reason why. At this time, the church had a, a very high view on the importance of the sacrament of penance. Penance was, was viewed by the church as a second chance for believers to be made right with God after having committed what is called mortal sin. You see, in that day, the church believed, as some still do today, that for a child to be cleansed from original sin, they must be baptized as an infant in the church. And after the child was, was baptized, the church taught that, that that child was then made right with God and original sin was removed. So baptism was the first step, the first plank of being made right with God. And they believed that a person remained in that state of grace until or unless they committed what was called mortal sin. Now there were some lesser sins known as venial sins and, and they were not as serious, but mortal sins were more severe. These sins could be anything from, you know, certain types of, of gluttony to, to fornication. And the church believed that when mortal sin was committed, it killed the saving grace that was experienced by that person at baptism. Now, that did not mean a person was then condemned to hell with no hope of redemption. No, the, the church believed that baptism put a permanent mark 
on the soul of that person so that even if that person fell from a state of grace through mortal sin, they were not without hope. Though one experienced a loss of grace through mortal sin, the church taught that the sacrament of penance through this, one could have this grace restored and once again be in right standing with God. You with me? All right. <laughs> it's a lot, I know, I know, but it, but, it, but it leads into why it's important that Luther went to Rome. And the sacrament of penance, it has several parts to it. One part is confession. We talked about that a moment ago. Remember, Luther would confess his sins over and over again, every 24 hours, all the sins that he had committed. Another one was contrition. That's when you show serious remorse for your sin and you openly declare regret for having offended God with your actions. And Luther had that as well, didn't he? And there was also priestly absolution. This is when the priest, in the name of Christ, grants forgiveness to an individual. But there's another important part that really stirred up the Reformation, and it's what's called works of satisfaction. Now, why this is important to understand when talking about Luther's trip to Rome is because one of the key ways to gain favor with God, one of the most important works of satisfaction was to make a pilgrimage to a sacred site. And at that time, sacred sites were primarily churches and cathedrals that housed a large collection of what are called holy relics. Relics were these religious objects that had ties to biblical characters and events. And that day, the church believed that these relics contained supernatural power. Some of these relics included the bones of St. Peter. Others were like a piece of the cross or the, the skull of John the Baptist. And churches would collect these, these relics it, because whoever had the largest amount, whoever had a large amount of relics for people to come and see, that, that made them a legitimate holy site. So making pilgrimages to these places that housed these relics was important. And there was no greater center for relics in all the world than in the city of Rome. So when Luther received word that he was going to be sent to Rome, he was excited to go. He was ecstatic. But he was upset because his mother and his father were still alive. Otherwise, he said, I could dedicate the favor gained by God from this trip to my parents. But because they were still living and not yet in purgatory, Luther had to dedicate his pilgrimage to his grandfather. So in 1510, Luther and his brother from the monastery, they set out for the holy city, and after several weeks of traveling, they finally reached Rome. And as they approached, Luther's heart was hopeful because he thought finally he was going to receive this peace. He was going to find peace for his restless soul. He truly thought that this experience that that going to Rome, through that, he was going to gain a deeper level and a new dimension of religious strength. Well, as many of you probably know by now, the trip did not go as Luther had planned. According to his later writings, Luther said in, in Rome, when he was in Rome, that was one of the most tragic and bitter and disillusioning experiences of his life. 
What Luther witnessed there was immoral behavior, not just by the citizens of Rome, but by the leaders in the church. I read that when Luther went to Rome, he saw priests who were so drunk they could not even finish the mass. He found that certain priests had broken their vows of celibacy by taking part in homosexual activity as well as visiting brothels. And Luther, being idealistic and naive by this, was, was, was shocked. He was shocked. But he continued on through the city and eventually made it to one of the most sacred sites in all of Rome. It was a site known as the Sacred Steps. The Sacred Steps were an ancient set of stairs that had been brought from Jerusalem to Rome. Roman tradition taught that these were the steps that Jesus walked up when he appeared before Pilate. This was one of the more holy sites in the city, and the church taught that if one would go up these steps one by one, when they reached the top, they would release a soul from purgatory. So Luther got on his hands and knees, and he crawled up these steps, kissing each step as he went. And after he finished this act of devotion and he got to the top of the stairs and he looked out and looked over the crowd, Luther whispered aloud to himself, who knows if it's true? Who knows if it's true? Now, many look at that experience and say, this is when Luther began to have serious doubts about works of satisfaction. It's thought that at this time, Luther really begins to question the practice of making pilgrimages and visiting sacred sites, among other things. Well, Luther left Rome deeply troubled, more so than he had ever been in his life. He saw in this so-called city, all he saw was widespread immorality, an empty religious ritual that had nothing to do with a righteous and a holy God. Well, Luther, he went back to Germany more troubled than when he left. And eventually his mentor, Johann Staupitz, in 1511 encouraged Luther to go to Wittenberg to study to be a Bible teacher. And that decision for Luther to go and study the Word of God was a turning point in Luther's life. When he arrived in Wittenberg, Luther threw himself into his studies. He earned a doctorate of theology in 1512 and began to teach in 1513. It was then when Luther began to teach and when he began to study and prepare lectures on the Bible that he truly began to understand the Christian faith according to God's word. His first series of lectures were through the Psalms. His great discovery really began there. But it developed in 1515, again, 10 years after the thunderstorm, five years after his pilgrimage to Rome, when Luther began to teach through the book of Romans. He later said that it was the first chapter of Romans, verses 16 through 17, when reading through those verses, that he really discovered the answer to his problem. In this verse, Paul explains that in the gospel, the righteousness or the justice of God is revealed. Now, these verses caught Luther's attention because Paul is saying that the gospel and the justice of God, the righteousness of God, go hand in hand. 
They're linked. How could this be so, Luther thought? For the longest time, Luther thought that God being just, God being righteous, was a bad thing, not a good thing. Because he knew if God is perfectly just, he's in trouble because he's a sinner. In fact, Luther often wished that God was unjust because he knew that a just God would never consider him fit for heaven because Luther knew how far he fell short of God's perfect and holy standard. So for the longest time, Luther hated that phrase, the justice of God. But Paul explains in verse 17 of Romans 1 that though God is just, though he requires perfection, through faith in Christ, God gives us the righteousness that he requires from us. Notice in Romans 1, Paul doesn't say the just rely upon themselves. He doesn't say the the righteous are monks who confess sin six hours a day to other monks. He doesn't say the righteous are those who make pilgrimages. No, he says the righteous are those who live by faith. Those who trust in Christ alone. Those who place their faith in Him and in Him alone. And this discovery by Luther in the book of Romans led to his actions on October 31st, 1517. You see, as Luther continued to study through the Scriptures, he came to realize that the doctrine of works of satisfaction... The teaching that through making pilgrimages and visiting holy sites, one could gain favor with God, Luther discovered that those teachings and practices that were upheld by the church at that time, they not only were not salvific, not only did they not save, but they were counter to the Christian message. Another practice that Luther fiercely attacked was the buying and selling of indulgences. Now, it's important to note here that uh, this was not a teaching in the church, but an abuse by those in the church. To their defense, the, the church at that time in the 16th century, nor at any time in history has ever, the, the church has never authorized this vulgar idea of salvation. Now, the church did at that time teach that one could gain favor with God through what was called almsgiving, or giving money to the poor. They taught that if one gave in the right frame of mind with a spirit of humility and a spirit of brokenness over sin, one could gain favor with God and and move closer to being restored to a right relationship with Him. But giving had to be done in the right frame of mind. But the church did not authorize, nor did it legitimize, the buying and the selling of indulgences. Now, in saying that, let me say this. Though it was not authorized by the church does not mean that certain leaders within the church did not promote these types of teachings and practices without official consent. At this period in time, in the 16th century, the church was probably at its lowest point morally. The church was more corrupt in Luther's day than it had been in its entire history. And one such immoral leader was a preacher by the name of Johann Tetzel. Though 
He was in ministry. Tetzel was really more like a crooked salesman than a devout preacher. He would often travel around from town to town selling salvation to raise money for the building of St. Peter's Basilica and to pay off debts that had been incurred by various church leaders. And he was a good salesman. He was successful. One of his popular sale pitches was this. He used to say, every time a coin in the coffer ring, a soul from purgatory springs. Pretty catchy, right? And here's a quote from Tetzel. Tetzel once said this. You should know whoever has confessed and is contrite and puts alms into the box as his confessors counsel him will have all of his sins forgiven. So why are you standing about idly? Run all of you for the salvation of your souls. Do you not hear the voices of your dead parents and other people screaming, saying, have pity on me, have pity on me. We are suffering severe punishment and pain from which you could rescue us. Sounds pretty convincing, doesn't it? And that was his appeal. The appeal of getting your relatives out of purgatory and into heaven. And depending upon how much one would give, depending upon how many years that person's loved one would have reduced from purgatory. And so the poor were giving all that they had to purchase these indulgences that Tetzel was offering. And this infuriated Luther. Luther saw this as the scam of all scams. He was enraged that Tetzel would exploit the poor and illiterate peasants of Germany in this way. And Luther's opposition against religious pilgrimages and the use of holy relics and the buying and selling of indulgences like you see here led to the events that took place on October 31st, 1517. On that day, on All Hallows' Eve, Luther, who at this time was an unknown professor of theology from the University of Wittenberg with a cool haircut, nailed a document that he had written to the door of the castle church that addressed the issues that he had with these various practices and teachings within the church. Practices like taking pilgrimages and visiting holy sites to gain favor with God and the buying and selling of indulgences. Now, something you may not know about Luther is this. He had no idea when he posted the 95 Thesis to the door of the church, he had no idea it would have the impact that it did. Many think he was doing this as an act of sheer rebellion to start a revolt. That's not the case. In those days, the church door served as a community bulletin board. It was customary, if someone had an issue, they would post things there for public comments and discussion. So when Luther posted what is called his 95 Thesis on the door of the church, he was simply doing what any professor would do at this time. He was putting forth his ideas for public consideration and for public debate. Luther was not some kind of rebel trying to stir up trouble, but he was a serious theologian. He was a serious scholar with serious concerns about the teachings and practices within the church. So he posted this writing as an invitation to other theologians to gather to discuss these things in an academic setting 
behind closed doors. At this time, Luther had no intention of stirring up the masses against the church. And the reason why we know this is because his writing was in Latin. Latin was the language of the scholars, not the language of the people. So he was not writing for public consideration, but God had other plans. Here's what happened. Though Luther wanted to keep his comments between the scholars, some students who read it took what Luther had written without Luther's knowledge and without his approval, and they translated it into German. And they, then they took advantage of the newly invented printing press to run off thousands of copies to distribute all over Germany. Within two weeks, without Twitter and Facebook and CNN, this writing was in every city in Germany. So unbeknownst to Luther, his actions on All Hallows' Eve in 1517 started a movement that would change the world. When Luther nailed this thesis to the door of the church, he didn't have any idea that his actions would ignite a spark that burst into a flame that spread across Europe. And again, what he was writing here, what he was addressing here in this writing was the question that plagued him 10 to 12 years earlier. The question of how a sinner is forgiven. How a person is redeemed. And Luther, when he discovered the sweetness of the gospel through his study of Romans in 1515, when he came to understand that the scriptures teach that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, plus nothing, minus nothing. When he nailed down that doctrine, he was not willing to negotiate with anybody. And believers, aren't you glad he didn't? Aren't you glad Luther didn't compromise? Because of his push for reform, many eventually broke from the church of the day. And many more were redirected back to the core doctrines of the Christian faith. The fact that evangelical churches have been established and now affirm that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, and that scripture alone is inspired by God and is our sole authority and is all we need for salvation and righteous living. All of that came as a result of the Reformation. Also because of Luther's efforts and his push for reform. Many evangelical churches, including this one, now affirm that all believers have the ability to read and understand the scriptures for themselves. We can also thank Luther and other reformers, and most importantly, God who is at work in and through them, for the fact that each of us has Bibles in our own language, in a translation that we can understand. Believers, how thankful are you for the fact that your Bible's not in Latin? You thankful for that? How thankful are you for the fact that many churches today, including this one, teach that, that uh, no longer teach that in order for one to be made right with God, they have to work for it by making pilgrimages and visiting holy sites and giving money. How thankful are you for churches like this one where you're told not to take the preacher's word for everything, but back up everything the preacher says by the word of God. How thankful are you for that? 
How thankful are you that you can attend a church where the pastor and the teachers and the leaders are all under the authority of Scripture? How thankful are you for that? How thankful are you for churches like this one that unapologetically preach the gospel, that unashamedly teach that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, plus nothing, minus nothing, no matter how unpopular that message is in our world today. How thankful are you for that? All of those things come as a result of the Protestant Reformation. Therefore, it's imperative, I think, that we, that we recognize and that we study and that we celebrate this, this key significant event in human history annually, if not more so. Because, folks, this is a key part of our Christian heritage. Without it, without the Reformation, without the efforts of faithful men like Luther and others who boldly stood alone for truth against a multitude of opposition we might still be trusting in false teaching and working for salvation that can never be earned. We're going to close in prayer. And as we do, I, I want to just ask you to just spend some time as we pray just praising the Lord for the great work that He has done in and through faithful followers of His throughout Scripture and throughout history to bring us to where we are today. Let's pray. Father, as we learn about Christian history,